Father, we ask that now as we sit in your presence before your word, that you would open up our hearts and minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that in attending to your voice, we might be changed and molded and shaped to become a more faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I wanna ask you a personal question. Uh, Did anyone in the room worry at all about money this week? Anybody at all had any kind of worries about money? Now, I know for some of you, the answer is no, you're doing great, you're well under control, uh, the bank account's good, the the, finances are great. But for for others in the room, maybe for, for those with four teenagers at home, two of whom started college at private Christian colleges, and uh, who have expensive dance courses and all number of things, and who has been inhabiting this economy that is marked by crazy inflation and gas prices. And is food costing 20, 30% more right now than it was just like six months ago, or is it just me? And I don't know about you, but I can find myself worried or concerned about finances. And so let me ask you another question. Do you ever pray about your finances? Do you ever pray about money and about provision? And do you ever wonder how you should pray about money? What you should pray, what you should say? Uh, What should you expect when you do pray? Should you expect that God would just send you a check in the mail? I mean, what kind of expectations should you have anyway when you pray for God's provision in your life? And I feel a little bit of a tension in my own heart and life as I think about these issues because on the one hand, You know, God reveals himself in Scripture as the God who provides. He names himself Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. God provides for Abraham a ram in the thicket, and to Hagar wandering in the wilderness a well of fresh water. And he provides manna in the wilderness and water from the rock and a bread aplenty for the crowds. Jesus multiplied. And Paul said to us, he said, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And Jesus, in his famous prayer that he gave us to pray, he said, pray this, give us our day, this day our daily bread. And so on the one hand, we are called to trust in God as our provider and to look to God for our daily sustenance and our bread. But on the other hand, I can be a little bit cynical. I can be cynical about, you know, versions of God that present him as some sort of like cosmic genie who exists in order to give us what we want when we want it, or maybe something of a, a, our sugar daddy in the sky, you know? And then, and then I can ask myself, what business do I have as a relatively affluent middle-class American, you know, looking to God desperately for sustenance to sustain my middle-class life when there are people on the other side of the world dying for lack of bread or fresh water or mosquito nets. And so what is it that we should expect anyway from God? What does it mean for God to be our provider? And to answer that question or to explore that question, I want to invite you to consider with me a story about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. So beginning today, we are launching out into a new series in the life of this ancient prophet, Elijah. 
Elijah lived and ministered in the ninth century BC, and so his story is some 3,000 years old. But I think what you'll discover as we engage in this series is that the issues that surface in his story are incredibly relevant for us today. And so we're going to be walking together in these stories about Elijah, and they are fascinating and intriguing and wondrous, and they stimulate your imagination, and you're asking, what would it be like to live in a world like this? And so we're going to be walking together in this story, but the first story that we're looking at addresses this topic of the provision of God. And the story unfolds in three main acts, and I want to invite you to walk with me through this story in each of the main acts, and we're going to highlight three features in the narrative. Uh, Number one, I want you to notice the river and the ravens. Uh, Number two, we're going to note the brook that dries up. And number three, we're going to observe something about the widow from Zarephath. And each one of these features of the narrative teach us something about what it means to trust in the provision of God. The story begins in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, you're like, where does a Tishbite come from anyway? Well, they come from Tishbe. And Elijah was a Tishbite from Tishbe. In Gilead, you're like, where was Tishbe again? I forgot, I can't remember, it was in Gilead. And he said to Ahab, and immediately we are introduced to the context of the story of Elijah. Elijah lived and he ministered in the days of King Ahab. Now, who is Ahab and what do we need to know about him? Well, as stories unfold over the next few weeks, we're gonna learn more and more about Ahab, but it is suffice, is suffice to say that Ahab presided over a season in the life of the nation of Israel that was incredibly dark and tumultuous. It comes about seven decades after Israel's great civil war where they divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the south was ruled by a succession of kings that's primarily chronicled in the book of Chronicles, and the kings in the north, which were um, uh, primarily, thank you, that was the word I was looking for, primarily bad, uh, is chronicled for us in the book of First and Second Kings. And listen to what it says about the rule of King Ahab. In the 38th year, or I'm sorry, not, uh, yeah, the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not new. Almost every other king that preceded, preceded him did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did not care for those on the margins. They did not worship the God of Israel. They turned to idols. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was unique about Ahab is the next line. He was evil more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sin of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, oh, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and he served Baal and worshiped him. Two things to note about Ahab. Ahab was actually a pretty powerful political leader. He was pretty astute. 
And the reason why he, made, he married Jezebel was to create an alliance with Sidon to the north, who at that time was their most powerful enemy to the north. So in order to open up trade routes and to get a little bit of extra military help, he entered into this alliance through the marriage of Jezebel. But what was good militarily and economically was a disaster spiritually because he wound up leading the people of Israel into worshiping Baal. And this leads us to the second observation about Ahab. He led Israel in worshiping Baal. Now, who's Baal? There he is right there. And uh, some of us, because of the Avengers, are familiar with Thor, the god of love and thunder. Come on, Thor. And Baal was basically uh, the Canaanite version of Thor. He was essentially the god of fertility and of thunder or of the storm. And they would worship Baal as the god of the storm in order to get something from Baal. And if Baal is the god of the storm, what are you going to get from worshiping that kind of god if you do the worship rightly? You're going to get rain. And if you're in the land of Canaan, which doesn't have any large river sources like the Nile to produce fertile land, you are dependent upon rain to have a strong agricultural economy. And the role of the king was to ensure that the agricultural economy was strong. And so in order to secure the economy, he turned to the idol Baal, and he led all of Israel into worshiping Baal in order to get the rain. But look what happens next. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, by the way, this is the first reference we have to Elijah. Elijah comes into the narrative unannounced and uninvited. You know, Ahab did not invite him to come onto the scene. Instead, he is called by God and he stands and he speaks this truth. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You know, you want, you want the God of rain, you want the God of thunder, the God of the storm, the true God of the storm is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is the Lord of all creation. And by my word, there shall be no rain in this land. And he looks at Ahab, now who's your daddy now, Ahab? But then... This means that the land is going to go into this economic downturn and times are going to get really, really difficult. Instead of having an abundance of crops, there's going to be scarcity. And in seasons of scarcity, we start to wonder about provision. When the bank account starts getting low, when the expenses start increasing, when the portfolio falls apart, when we lose the job, when we don't know where the paycheck's going to come from, when we don't know how we're going to cover the medical bills, in times of scarcity, we start wondering about the provision. And here's where God takes Elijah now to a river and introduces him to some ravens. Look at what it says. And the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And so God leads Elijah in a spirit of scarcity to two sources of provision. 
And the first is pretty straightforward and pretty natural. He brings him to a, a brook or a river in order to find water. And uh, a river, drinking water, that's natural. But the next thing is not natural at all. He commands these ravens to bring him bread and meat two times a day, which I read to mean that he, he commanded the ravens to bring him a sandwich, you know, a sandwich at lunch and a sandwich at dinner. And this was an abundance of food. In the ancient world, you didn't have meat very often. You certainly didn't have it uh, twice a day. And so Elijah is doing pretty well. He's got a brook for some water. Uh, he's got his bread and meat for his eating. And he seems to be taken care of. And here we begin to observe something about the provision of God. By the way, I just love this artwork depicting the ravens that brought Elijah his food. But what are we learning about God's provision in this text? Well, we're learning something that, we're, we're learning that God's provision can come to us in both natural as well as supernatural ways. Uh, God's provision can come in very natural ways. Here, in this case, it was by a brook. And if you wanted water and you were thirsty, you went to the river. And this too is from the hand of God. Uh, that water is upheld by God who is the ground of all existence and the stones in that riverbed and the sands that lie there upheld by God and the hands of Elijah that went down and cupped that water in order to drink it ultimately came to him from the hand of God. And so this too is the provision of God. And of course, God can provide for us. He can provide for you in very natural ways. He can get you a new job and that's God's provision. And you might get a promotion or a raise or inexplicably, maybe there's a, a new opportunity for a side hustle in order to make a little bit of extra income. And you take advantage of those sources of income. But make no mistake, even when it is you who is working and you have stepped into the opportunity, ultimately that has come from the hand of God. God is our provider. He has provided employment. He has provided opportunities. He has provided us resources and skills and a mind to think and abilities to work. And these can all be recognized and ought to be recognized as the provision of God. And so God can provide for us in very natural ways, but God also provides in this instance in a very supernatural way. And to our shock and to our disbelief in many ways, God provides for Elijah through a raven who is bringing bread and meat, which is just odd and kind of cool and very unusual. You know, a raven is normally a, 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 a bird of prey, not usually a bird of provision. And yet here, the raven is providing. And ravens, according to the book of Deuteronomy, were also an unclean bird that Israelites were not allowed to eat. And here God is using that which is unclean, that which is outside of his categories, that which is inexplicable, and here is the surprising provision of God. And so what are we learning about the provision of God in this passage? God's provision can come in a wide array and a diversity of circumstances and through a wide variety of sources, sometimes natural, sometimes very inexplicable, as well as supernatural. Now, uh, I don't expect that any of you have had the experience of a bird bringing you meat, have you? Uh, though I was watching Alone this last week, 
And one of the contestants in a moment of desperation was wandering the beach. She had been unable to catch any fish for like two weeks. If you're like, what is Alone? Why is he talking about Alone? Alone is a wonderful reality TV show about, uh, that drops a bunch of contestants off into the wilderness of Canada in order to be hunted by grizzly bears and try to make their way by themselves without anything but a few simple resources. Scott Nelson would do well on Alone. Are you gonna go on Alone, Scott? Maybe you can do Alone training for us next year after we go through foragers. But this lady's on the beach, and, and lo and behold, there's a fish that had been dropped from a bird, and she took that and she ate it, and she found sustenance. And so maybe God is still providing meat from birds. I don't know. But God, no doubt, for many of you, has provided for you in moments of desperation in inexplicable ways. And I know in our own family, in our own life, I think we can look back on moments and times in our life where it just didn't make sense that the house cost us that much rather than this much. It just didn't make sense that somebody allowed us to stay in this apartment at this low price. It didn't make sense that you know an, a, an envelope arrived in the mail with no name and just a load of cash in there. It just didn't make sense. And I think many of us in this room have experienced God's inexplicable provision. This week, I was reading a story about a young man uh, whose name was Tandy Chetsi. And he was in UK from Zimbabwe. And he moved here when he was just 17 years old. And he said there was limits on how much he could work. And he said this, he said, I, I didn't have uh, an ability really to work, and I didn't have an indefinite leave to remain. And he said, as an international student, I didn't qualify for student loans. And he said, my mom gave me enough for tuition, but after paying that, I didn't have much left. And he said, it was really difficult. I was living by faith quite frequently. I'd cover my rent as a bare minimum, but would have to ask my housemates to cover me for bills until I got paid. Money being tight completely limited my social life, apart from getting stuck into the church. <laughs> One week, I was down, seven pence, down to seven pence in my bank account. This is British. And he says, he said, you read the story of the widow's might, but I found myself quite literally with a penny to give in the offering. I remember putting it in an envelope because I was so ashamed about putting it in the bucket on its own. Part of the blessing of not being able to do much and not having much money was that I spent a lot of time with God. I got used to spending hours just praying and not necessarily asking or saying anything, but just waiting. And I was getting to a place where it didn't matter if I had no money because God was all that mattered in, the, in those moments and I had a sense of peace. Well, then this day came and I'd been waiting 15 or 20 minutes in prayer. And then I had this picture in my mind's eye of a NatWest name badge with the word Sarah on it. And God just said, your money is coming tomorrow. I thought, what money? What are you talking about? And then I heard, go in tomorrow afternoon to the bank and collect it. Take half of it and give the rest to Sarah. I did not know what to think or feel. I was scared stiff, but there was an element of excitement to see if this was real. I went to the bank the next day and was shocked to find 800 pounds had been deposited into my account just before I got there, with no reference to where it came from. I didn't think I'd seen 800 pounds in three months before that. So at first, I felt this real rush of excitement. I realized, this is actually happening. And then he said, Sarah wasn't working at the bank that day, so I couldn't give her the 400 pounds. 
The next day, I waited in her queue, got to the front and said, Sarah, this is gonna sound strange, but I need to give this to you. And she said, do you wanna deposit it? And then I realized I was giving her money in a bank. How was I going to explain that? I just said, there's a note inside that explains everything. Just read that, it's for you. I just want you to know God loves you and God bless you. And she was shaking her head and her face was in complete disbelief when I, when I left. That experience made my faith grow. I'm not concerned by hardship. I don't spend time worrying about what might go wrong because I've seen it and I've been there and I was fine. God was with me. And I wonder how many of you could testify in the same way. You've been in times of plenty and of times of want, and yet you have seen the hand of God provide for you in the midst of those challenging difficulties. And so what Elijah is teaching us, what the story wants us to see, is that even in periods of your own financial insecurity, even in periods of scarcity, you too can trust in God as your provider. Well, the story goes on, and let's note, by the way, I just had to include that one. Isn't that a great? I like it. So the story goes on, and we notice the next feature in the narrative, and we move from the river and the ravens to the dried-out brook, because after a bit of time, it says, the river ran out. It says, after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This brook in uh, the original Hebrew, the, the word used to describe a river is a wadi. It's a temporary stream. And so it only has a short-term life to it. And much like some of the rivers up here in the San Gabriel Mountains, where you get a lot of water in spring, but right now, if you go for a hike, it's gonna be empty. So too, in ancient Israel, they had the same situation going on. And so the river that was providing him nourishment and support dries up. And the text doesn't tell us, but the indication is, is that the Raven, uh, the raven uh, food service, you know, the Raven catering service also dried up. By the way, if you're looking as an entrepreneur to start a new business, you might consider the Raven Catering Service. That's, um, that, that would be kind of cool, yeah. But it seems like the source of his nourishment and provision dried up. And of course, at some point in our life, the river always dries up, doesn't it? You reach some kind of hardship, some kind of difficulty, and the economy takes a downturn, uh, the company downsizes, you lose your job, you're overcome with student debt, and you don't know how you're gonna make the next payment for grad school, and you're just overwhelmed. You know, there's a medical bill and, and something, and it just seems like the resources you had have dried up, and you don't know what you're gonna do. And I think one thing that this text tells us is that here is the prophet of God who is being faithful, and here is the man of God who stands to speak truth in the presence of power with great courage and boldness to Ahab, even at the potential threat of his own life. And here is a man who hears the command and responds to the word of God. This is obedient Elijah. This is prayerful Elijah, the man who prays and it rains and he prays and it stops. This is courageous Elijah. And now this is Elijah, a man in need. And I think what we can learn from this about our own lives is that it doesn't matter who you are. As a follower of Jesus, you too will go through times where you experience need and want. 
And oftentimes it has nothing to do with your lack of faith. Sometimes it's because of the faith that you have that God is putting you through this time to try and refine your faith even more. But you know, you too will go through periods where you will need to trust in God. And what I want you to see from this text is that this is a good thing. You see, Elijah could have come to the conclusion that his source was the river, or maybe his source for sustenance was the ravens. But of course, these were not ultimately his source. You know, your job is not your source, and your paycheck is not your source. And your skill set that enables you to have a you know, productive livelihood is not your source. Your source is ultimately God. And all of these things are resources. They're things that God can use. He can bring into your life and he can use these in order to sustain you. And he can be your source and your provider, but they are not what we put our trust in. And maybe Elijah is going through this period where the brook dries up. I mean, the brook didn't have to dry up, right? I mean, God could have supernatural. We've seen this thing before from God. He, you know, he gives water from a rock. The brook could have kept going. The ravens could have kept coming, but they don't. And maybe the reason for that is Elijah needs to learn, and we all need to learn alongside Elijah that our source is not that river and it's not the birds, that the sources can change or that the resources can shift and change, but the one who will not change in your life is God who is your sustainer and your source and your provider. And you can trust in God, you can look to God, you can hope in God. And so Elijah is brought into this moment where the river dries up. Maybe so he can learn, maybe so we all can learn that ultimately our source is in God. Well, the story goes on, and we move from the river and the ravens to the dried up brook to now the widow from Zarephath. And this is great. By the way, this, I love this. <laughs> I just saw this. It's like, this is what we all think, right? When it's like the bank account, where did it go? You know, like... Where's the river, you know? <laughs> Am I the only one that's like, we've looked at the checking account, we're like, what happened? <laughs> like, there was so much more last month. I don't know where it all went, you know? But at some point, the brook dries up. But it, we go on. And it says, then the word of the Lord came to him. So now, you know, he was doing pretty good, right? He was doing well. Uh, he, he was drinking. He was getting two meals a day. He, he was living high on the hog, you know, as they say. And then it dries up. And then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. This is interesting. God now commands Elisha to go north outside of the boundary of Israel into Sidon, which is the very land from which Jezebel is from. In other words, he is invited to go right into the heart of the Baal belt. You know, we've got the Bible belt here. Well, this is like the Baal belt. It's the very heart of Baal worship. And he says, there you're gonna find a widow, which again is surprising because widows in the ancient world were oftentimes destitute. They were unable to support and sustain themselves. 
You know, in a patriarchal society, you were dependent upon the land that belonged to the man and to the way in which they could work the land and provide for you. And a widow oftentimes was destitute and on the margins. And maybe Elijah is commanded to go to a widow in particular as in some way a backhanded slap to Ahab because he was failing to care for the widows and those who were poor and on the margins in his own country. And so Elijah goes up to this Gentile, this non-Jew, who's in Seraphath, the very heart of Bible, of Baal belts, and uh, he says, behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. This is going to be a strange source of provision for Elijah. It's surprising. It's outside of his categories. It's outside of the box. You know, I wonder if God has ever provided for you in a way that you were like, this was outside of the categories and outside of the box, you know? And so he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, well, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat of it and die. And so Elijah does what you would do in the ancient world if you were a foreigner traveling in a foreign land. You would have to be dependent upon the hospitality of the residents in order to care for you. In a society where hospitality was the preeminent value and character trait, it was their obligation in order to care for you. So he goes there, he asks her for provision, and she says, listen, sir, you are out of your mind. You're asking the wrong person for help. I am on my last jar of oil, my last little bit of flour. In fact, I'm going to gather some sticks, build a fire, bake my last pancake, feed it to my son, and we're going to starve to death because we don't have anything else. I don't have anything to give you. And isn't it interesting? This is the person Elijah is sent to to find provision. Well, Elijah hears that, and he says, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. He says, he, he gives her a promise. He says, first provide for me. Put God first in your life. Give first and then you will see and experience my provision. Do you see the order? Give first, sacrifice first, trust, and then you will experience the provision of God. She has to take a step of faith, and all she has is the promise of God. And she went and she did, as Elijah said, and she and her and her whole household ate for many days, and the jar of, oil, of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord spoke by the prophet Elijah. So she 
goes in obedience to the command in faith and trust in the promise, and she experiences the provision of God. And what are we learning here about the provision of God? Listen, we can trust in God to be our provider, but there is a particular kind of relationship that God is wishing to cultivate in us. There is an environment of life that we inhabit and live in, in which we can believe that we can receive the provision of God because of the way in which we are seeking to live our life and what are the core marks of the person who can have confidence that God will be their provider. Well, there's two marks. One is it's a person who will put God first in their finances. You will put God first in your finances. The Bible teaches this principle, honor God with the first fruits of all of your increase. And then this promise, honor the Lord with your wealth, with your first fruits of all your crops. And then, then, you see it follows. Oftentimes we think I need to have a lot before I can start to give. I need, I need more. If, when, I, when I get enough, you know, when, we, when the bank account's enough, listen, it will never be enough. You never have enough to start giving. You honor the Lord today, and then he says, your barns will be filled to overflowing, your vats will brim over with new wine. In fact, the prophet Malachi, God gives a promise. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Do you hear the promise, church? He is saying, trust God with your finances. Put God first, first tangibly, specifically. We're not talking about mentally, you know, say, God, I theoretically trust you with my wealth but act on it by bringing a portion of your income and giving it away. Giving it, investing it in the local church, investing it in the mission of God, investing it in caring for the poor. Take your wealth and just start giving it away. Live with an open hand. And when you do, you will experience, as you're putting God first with your resources, you will experience the provision of God and you will start to experience this paradox that in giving, we actually receive. And some of you have known this, haven't you, in your own life? It is when a person is living with a scarcity mindset that there's not enough to go around and we're gonna run short and I can't share and I gotta keep mine close to me and I gotta keep my house closed and my refrigerator closed and my table closed and the bank account closed because if I open it up, there's not gonna be enough. If I open up and give generously forgiveness and kindness and time to people and I serve, there's not gonna be enough left for me. And the irony that we learn, the paradox that is shot through the entirety of the Bible is this, that paradoxically, when you start to give is the very moment you actually start to receive. Jesus put it like this, give and it will be given to you. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe the word of Jesus? Give, and it will be given to you. That when you open up your hands to give generously to others, you find that those same open hands start generously receiving back. And this is the widow at Zarephath. This is what she is teaching us. She opens up her hands 
and she puts God first with her resources. And she opens up her hands and she shares her resources with a stranger in need of food. And in giving, she is provided abundantly. In a world of scarcity, she experiences the abundance of God. Now you say, Josh, what are you saying? That if I just start giving, you know, uh, you know, just like the faith teachers, put in that love gift offering, and then you'll get back, you know, some big check in the mail. No, I'm not saying that. It doesn't work like that at all. But, you know, last night we had a wedding here with Jonathan and Wisdom, and watching how they have chosen to live their lives, and they've opened up their lives, they've lived generously with their lives and with resources and, and Myself, I've been a recipient of generosity in their life. And watching what they experienced last night was this generous outpouring of love and support and encouragement from a family around them. And it's because they've chosen to create a pattern of opening up their lives and giving. And when you do that, the natural byproduct is that you just find yourself receiving again and again and again. A sociologist, Christian Smith, put it like this. He, this is a sociologist from Notre Dame. He did this truckload of research on the science of generosity. And there's been a great deal of research that they had. And he said this. He said, rather than leaving generous people on the short end of an unequal bargain, practices of generosity are actually likely instead to provide generous givers with essential goods in life, happiness, health, and purpose, which money and time themselves simply cannot buy. That is an empirical fact well worth knowing. Listen, there is an argument to be made that you and I have an obligation. You know, rich Christians in an age of hunger have an obligation to share what we have with those who are in need. And there's an argument we can make for that. And there's, there's an argument to be made that, that we have to be investing in local churches and in the mission of God. And we could argue, we could argue that. But, but the argument of this text is, I think what this text has shown us, what Jesus has taught us, is that giving is not just good for the poor, and it's not just good for the church, and it's not just good for the mission of God and for organizations. Giving generously is good for you. And I think the more you take choices to live into that by practicing generosity, by giving a greater and greater percentage of your wealth away, even when in your mind it doesn't make sense, you find over time the provision and the abundance of God. You cannot outgive God. For Father, we ask that as we spend a moment in reflection, We just ask, God, that you would call to mind those places in our life where we might be asked by you to trust you in a more real and significant way. And I pray, God, that even as we seek to open up our hearts and lives and our hands to you and our resources to you, and then we take those elements and we hold them in our hand God, would you reveal to us afresh that because you have given us your very self, we have everything. And God, may we find satisfaction and fullness in the provision of your own life and self. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.